Ruth's going to come. We're in Genesis 3, and she's going to read to us. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you. Well, in my short life, I have experienced some shocking surprises. I would gather that everyone in this room has probably experienced different shocking surprises. Some happy ones, some sad ones, some scary ones. There was a shocking surprise of finding out that Elizabeth was pregnant with our first child. There's the shocking surprise. I remember being a kid when Reagan got shot, and I can remember that was just a shocking surprise. I remember the shocking surprise of 9-11 when the second plane hit the South Tower. I remember the shocking surprise of turning the corner when we were in Utah, or not in Utah, in Nevada, when we turned the corner to see Lake Tahoe for the very first time. 
I think our lives are often just filled with shocking surprises. Genesis chapter 3 is packed with shocking surprises. And these aren't just generic surprises. These are surprises that impact your life every day. Did you know that? Maybe she read this. As Ruth read this, you caught on to some of those. Literally, there is just one shocking surprise after another that impacted your day yesterday, your morning, and is impacting you right now. And so all I want to do this morning is walk us through three shocking surprises. And then under each shocking surprise, a couple hundred other shocking surprises to support that shocking surprise. Make sense? So three big ones, and then there'll be some little surprises under the big surprise. Let's jump in. The first shocking surprise is the shocking surprise of sin. We're going to see this in verses 1 to 6. It is just the shocking surprise of sin. In chapters 1, to two, one and 2, if there was a song playing in the background, it would probably be that song from Enchanted, the happy little working song. That's what the song would be behind Genesis 1 and 2. When we get into chapter 3, the song in the background is very, very different. The sudden change, the way that sin enters the world is shocking. The timing of it, the location of it, the invasiveness of it. It it, it shocks us. Now, as readers like us who've read it a hundred times, the shock has worn off. But for the first-time reader, chapter 3 would have blown their mind. Everything happens so quickly, so decisively, so thoroughly. Sin comes in so intentionally and irreversibly. It's almost like you read it, and then you go, whoa, wait, wait, what just happened? Like, it happens so quick, you don't even catch all that's going on. In a blink of an eye... Out of the 1,189 chapters of the Bible, you're only in chapter 3, and sin comes into the world. It is a shocking surprise. Let me give you some specific reasons that this chapter shows us that it is a shocking surprise. It begins as a shocking surprise because we have a talking serpent. <laughs> I can hear Lucy say, Beavers aren't supposed to talk, or whatever she says in Narnia. I can hear us saying, serpents aren't supposed to talk. That should have tipped her off, right? I doubt she ever encountered a talking animal before, and that should have tipped her off that something wasn't right. She should have been shocked by that. According to Revelation 12, we know that this is actually Satan possessing the body of a serpent. And out of all the beasts of the field that are crafty, there were crafty ones. He's the craftiest of the crafty ones. In the Hebrew, it means he's prudent. He almost has good sense in what he says to Eve, and it's shocking. And what's also shocking about the sin of Satan is the message that he brings, the twisting of God's word. After all, that's what he does, right? He lies. And so what does he say to Eve in verse 1? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You get what he's doing, right? God is just a big party pooper. He's a killjoy. When you think of God, you need to think of no, 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 no. He's always saying no. But we know that this is not what God said, right? We know Satan is lying. And what he's doing in this question to Eve is asking her to stand in judgment over God. Is that really what God said? Think about it, Eve. What do you think God said? As if she is now going to judge God's words. Another thing that's shocking about how sin comes into the world is Eve's response to this. I mean, these are the very first words recorded in Scripture coming from Eve's mouth. And in verse 2, 
we get a glimpse at what she says. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the, tree, of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Good. But God said, You shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Good. And then she adds, Neither shall you touch it. It's almost like she wants to like agree with Satan a little bit. So she adds that little phrase onto the end. She twists what God really said to her. And that's shocking. We've got the first perfect man and wife couple on the earth, and she's twisting God's words in chapter 3 of the story. What else is shocking is then how the story goes on, how Satan calls God's character into question in verses 4 and 5. He says, oh, you're not really going to die. Come on. You really think that you're going to die? And then he tells you the real reason that God doesn't want you to eat of that tree, Eve, is because if you eat of it, you're going to be like God. And God doesn't want any competition. So he's holding that tree back so that you won't compete with him for the position of God. He's trying to keep you from being like him. Now, at this point, you'd kind of wish or hope or expect Eve to respond with something like, are you out of your mind? (laughs) I'm in the perfect garden with the perfect man. He loves me and I love him. God walks with us. I have all the fruit I could ever eat, all the vegetables I could ever want. God has provided me with everything. Didn't you listen to Kaylin's sermon last week? But she doesn't respond that way, does she? It's shocking how she responds in verse 6. In verse 6, she begins to decide what is good and what is evil by assessing the tree and by assessing the fruit of the tree. So in verse 6, she decides that it is good for food, according to her. It is a delight to the eyes. It's to be desired. It will make her wise. She uses her own senses to determine, is it good for me to eat of this tree or is it evil for me to eat of this tree? Rather than listening to God, who has already told her she is not to eat of the tree. In essence, she is determining what is good and what is evil. Evil, And she's deciding, maybe the tree is good, so I think I'll eat of it. Now, we need to know is that the fruit itself wasn't evil. I don't, it wasn't an apple. Sorry, if you thought it was. I'm pretty sure it was a mango because I don't like mangoes. But I don't know what it was. We don't know what it was. But the point is, it wasn't the fruit itself, right? I think we know that. It wasn't the fact that the fruit had poison in it or something. When you ate it, it got into her body and her soul and, and made her sick so she would one day die or corrupted her soul somehow. The, the tree and not eating from the tree symbolized Adam and Eve bowing before God. And his authority. It was, it was their way of saying to God, we want you to rule over us. We agree that you're good. We agree that you're in charge. We agree that your ways are the right ways, are the best ways. This is their way of submitting to God. So when Eve eats of the tree, it's really an act of rebellion against God's ruling authority, against God's ways. It's her way of saying, I will decide what is right and wrong. It's kind of interesting. The very act of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she's declaring God's command to not eat is evil, and her eating it is good. (laughs) And so we know what she does. She eats. I mean, that just one little phrase when Ruth read it, I was like, man, 
She took of its fruit and ate. Everything changes. Everything in your life changes. And then the shocking surprise that we find out that Adam is sitting right there next to her. (laughs) He's just sitting there. Listening to this conversation. Not speaking into it at all. Just passively sitting there. Watching. I mean, he watched her bite the apple and thought, Ooh, she's a goner. Oh, she didn't die. You want some? Well, she didn't die, so why not? And there he is, partaking of the apple with her. As Eve's head, Adam was to lead her, care for her, protect her, and yet he passively sits there as this conversation unfolds. Now, it's particularly interesting about how this particular story unfolds is that the created order, the way God ordered things to be, is completely reversed. God's way of doing things was for God to be the head over Adam and Eve, and Adam to be the head over Eve, and then Adam and Eve to be head over creation and the animals. And here in the story, it's flipped completely upside down. Eve is submitting to the serpent, Adam is submitting to Eve, and no one is submitting to God. The animal is leading and taking authority over Eve, Eve is leading and having authority over Adam, and Adam is, or God's authority then is being completely ignored. So the whole thing is flipped upside down down, which is what makes this scene so shocking. This is not the good way God created things to be in order. And so what does Adam do? And what does Eve do? They eat. The phrasing goes like this. And she took and she ate and she gave some to Adam. And that changed everything forever. Forever. Our scripture memory, Dode, I hope you can put that up on the screen. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. That's the moment. Adam eating. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many, you and me, were made sinners. That verse fits right in there as they take and eat. If you'll allow me, There's a gospel moment here that I cannot resist and didn't want to wait till the end to share with you. But it's hard to hear the words take and eat and not think of someone else who will say later on, take and eat. It's hard to hear the words take and eat and gave some to Adam and not hear someone else's voice saying take and eat and he gave some to his disciples. Little, little foreshadowing going on here. Jesus would reverse the effects of take and eat with his own take and eat. Jesus would one day redeem that take, eat, and gave with his own take, eat, and gave. These words in Genesis are words of death, take, eat, give. For Jesus, they will be words of salvation when he says take and eat and give. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Back to Genesis. Surprising shock number two. The shocking surprise of the results of sin. We have the shocking surprise of the results of sin. The first thing we see in verse 7, what's it say? Somebody read it to me. What happens first? Eyes are open. The very first thing. Suddenly their eyes are open. They have a brand new experience of evil and badness. Up to this point, they only knew good. They didn't know evil. They trusted God to take care of the bad. They would just focus on the good. 
and now they know good and bad. Perhaps a couple of different ways to illustrate this. How many of you are appendicitis survivors? Appendicitis. So we have some appendicitis survivors. So I had my appendix out, I don't know how many years ago now, it was 12, 15 years ago. Had typical you know, symptoms, I'm a man, so I'm blubbering like a baby in pain. <laughs> so I've got pain, I've got it coming and going, I go to the hospital, you have your appendix taken out. The doctor, obviously, knows way more about appendicitis than I do. He understands how, they, how it works, he knows what to check me for to find out if I have it or if I don't have it, what, what to look for in my blood test to make sure what's going on. He knew how to go in and I've got my little Madeline scar where they took it out. <laughs> so I... I know about appendicitis, and so does the doctor. But I know about appendicitis from the inside. I know the pain of appendicitis. I've experienced appendicitis. He knows about it, but he hasn't experienced, I don't think he had, experienced appendicitis. He could tell me a lot about it, but it wasn't within him. And I think that's what's happening here with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve now know sin from within. They only knew it before from without. Now they know all about sin from experience. When their eyes were opened, sin came now from within. It got into them. And now they know firsthand the knowledge of evil. And from that, it will change them forever. Now they have a characteristic, dare I say an attribute of God that they were not designed to have. God understood good and evil. And he didn't understand evil from within. Now they are going to experience this knowledge of good and evil that only God was supposed to have. Now they would decide what is good and what is evil. They weren't created for that. They were created to live under God's rule with him blessing them with good and keeping them from evil. And now they want to be the ones to decide what is good and what is evil. So they have this new burden of looking at things and now having to evaluate, is this good, is this evil, should I do it or should I not do it? Whereas before, God was taking care of all of that. And their new experiential knowledge of good and evil has led to more shocking results. If you look at verse 7, not only are their eyes open, but their eyes are open to what? They're naked. Now, I think they knew before this that they were naked. I don't think they were like, ah! <laughs> I think they knew, okay? So it wasn't, it's not that kind of knowledge going on. But it's a knowledge that impacted them now in a very, very different way. And to understand that, you've got to look back at the end of chapter 2. So the end of chapter 2, verse 24, tells us why this is a shocker for them. Chapter 2, verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. There's a, there's a covenant of marriage there. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife we're both naked and we're not ashamed. It's an odd thing to add, don't you think? Of all the things that tell us about our newlyweds, tell us that they were happily married and they enjoyed the animals and eating from the garden and they were becoming closer and closer every day. Why this? Why, why tell us that? Tons of things God could tell us. Instead, he tells us, by the way, they were naked and not ashamed. And I think he tells us that there to inform this statement where now they are naked and they are, in fact, ashamed. Shame has come. Shame has now entered the world. 
And verse 10 teases out what the shame brings into their lives. God said to them, I heard, or Adam said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was afraid because I was, what's it say? I was naked and I, what's it say? Hid myself. Afraid. Is that a TV show? Naked, hid, afraid. Naked, hid, afraid. Sort of like the ingredients for shame. Or the things that surround shame. Naked, hiding, and fear. Before they ate the apple, they were not ashamed because they had this covenant commitment with one another. Before they ate of the apple or the fruit, they're naked and not ashamed because they have nothing to be ashamed of. They're not ashamed of their naked physical nakedness. They're not ashamed of any of their actions, any of their behaviors, or any of their words. They've done nothing that would make them feel shameful. But now they are naked, and they find themselves ashamed and hiding and afraid. And for the first time, they're feeling embarrassment, humiliation, that soul-sickening and painful feeling of knowing we did something ugly. We did something ugly wrong, which is why we find them in verse 8, hiding from the presence of the Lord. They're hiding from God, and it's almost comical that they're using fig leaves to hide from God, as if somehow that'll take care of my shame. We'll put some fig leaves on, that'll, that'll take care of the shame. We won't feel this embarrassment or this soul-sickening feeling for disobeying God's one command of something we shouldn't do by putting on some fig leaves. And then verse 8 tells us they hid not just with fig leaves, but they hid among the trees, it says. And think about it. The, the trees were good. They were God's gift to them to enjoy. And now they're using that good gift to hide behind so that God can't see them. The consequences of their wanting to be like God in choosing for themselves what is good and evil has spun out of control in their lives. So now they're hiding from the very one that created them. He went really from being their personal God to now someone that they're fearful of. You know, it just raises the question, what do you do when you feel shame? What do you do when you feel ashamed? What do you do when you're aware of things you've thought, said, done that make you feel shameful? What do you do? I'm sure we all have a list of things that we really would rather no one else in the universe ever know about ourselves. There's things you do not want your mother to know about you. Or your brother, or your sister, or your son, or your daughter. So what do you do when you feel the pain and the hurt and the shame doing things that you shouldn't do. Do you hide from God's presence? Or perhaps you take the other approach that Adam and Eve take to try to get rid of their shame. They play the blame game. Instead of hiding from God, God has now found them. He's confronted them. He's talking with them. And who does Adam blame? And then who does Eve blame? Serpent. Can you imagine blaming someone else for something you did? I've never done that. There's a joke 
between my, one of my older sisters and I as we would break things in the house very frequently. Usually I was the breaker and she was the blamer. I'd break it and I'd blame her over and over again. Kids, maybe you can identify. Maybe you've blamed your brother or sister for something that you know you did. But these are mature adults who have a relationship with God, who are now blaming anyone and anything they can around them, including a talking snake. <laughs> this is just a shocking surprise that they would even say the things they said, yet can't we identify with wanting to do whatever we can to shift shame away from our lives? We join Adam and Eve in doing the same shame Deflecting game by blaming circumstances, our kids, our spouse, our parents, the economy, anything and anyone else that we can possibly point to to take away our shame. We will hide behind whatever we can. And their sin really has impacted them in this very specific way. And this is why when Adam sinned, we all sin. And we pick up his patterns in our lives. It's shocking. Well, there's a third category, big picture. It is the shocking surprise of God's response. The shocking surprise of God's response. If you only had chapters 1 and 2, and you got to this point in the text, and you shut your Bible and you thought, I wonder what God's going to do. I doubt we would write what we read. I doubt I would write what we read here. How does God respond to their attempt? They try to dethrone him as God. God's only told them one thing not to do, and they did it. They listened to the serpent. They've blamed one another. What is God going to do? Well, we see what God does. Begins with him walking towards them in the garden. And they heard, it says verse 8, the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God moves toward them. God pursues them. God does not leave them in their fear and in their shame. God goes after Adam and Eve. He knows what they've done, and yet he still goes after them. He could have stood far off and watched for a few weeks to see what they would do. But instead, he moves towards them. He walks right into the garden, right into the clump of trees where they're hiding, drawing near and close to them, letting them know that he is personal and he wants to be with them. And it's not just him walking into the garden that makes us know that he is personal and close. But did you notice the shift in God's name in the second half of verse 1 to what we just read? What does Eve Call, I'm sorry, what does Satan call God in the second half of verse 1? God. What does Eve call God in verse 3? God. What does Satan call God in verse 5? What is he called in verse 8? The Lord God. When Satan and Eve are dialoguing about God, he's God. When the narrator takes over in verse 8, we read in verse 8, the Lord God. What's he called in verse 9? 
The Lord God. What about verse 13? 14. 21. The Lord God. 22. The Lord God. Do you remember what Kalen taught us last week? God is the word for creator. He's hovering over the universe. He's out there. Lord God is God is near. He's close. He's personal. Yahweh, Elohim. He's close to you. So there's a shift that takes place. When Satan and Eve are talking about God, he's this God out there. When God comes in and breaks into the conversation and talks with Adam and with Eve, when he pronounces these judgments, he is the Lord God. He is close and he is personal. The very thing he's doing, demonstrating by walking into the garden. It's almost as if God is working extra hard here to make sure that we know that when you are filled with fear and shame, that he wants to move towards you to be personal. As he does with Adam and Eve. Isn't that just good news? You ever just feel just, just like crap? <laughs> like all this stuff you know you should have done that you didn't do. All the stuff you did that you didn't want to do. And you just think, just give up, God. Why don't you just give up? And we have this beautiful example of God just marching right into where they are. Right into their presence. Trying to hammer the point home that he wants to be personal with us in our shame and in our fear and in our hiding and in our blaming, he still comes after us. And he doesn't just leave them there. Look what he does. It says that he calls to them. He calls to them. I mean, just think about how this scene could have played out. God could say, okay, I'm gonna, I'll walk into the garden, and then I'll just kind of pace back and forth near the trees. <laughs> and to see, maybe they'll say something to me. Maybe they'll initiate. None of us have ever done that as spouses, have we? Maybe she'll break the contact by initiating forgiveness. <laughs> Not God. God goes right into the garden. And then God initiates the conversation. Adam, where are you? He knows where he is. He knows exactly where he is. But he goes right after him. Adam, he calls to Adam. Listen, church, this is the heart of your God. This is the heart of your Jesus in your sin and rebellion, God desires to be close and personal to you even when you tried to hide. What grace. Shocking, surprising grace. It's unbelievable. Well, the next thing we see that is shocking, well, the, the text switches to poetry. Does it do that in your journals? I think it switches to poetry. The conversations and the Q&A time with Adam and Eve is over, and now it's monologue. Now God's going to do all the talking. No more question asking. He kicks into talk mode. And what he does here, it's very interesting. There's a mixture throughout this poetry and the, and the paragraphs after that mix grace with penalty, that mix grace with judgment. We can even say it mixes grace with punishment. Can you think of any other time in God's word where grace and punishment might be mixed together? Where grace and justice might mingle? Where grace and punishment might meet? Well, that's what he does here. Both are mingled together. And God weaves them two together beautifully. First, God curses the serpent 
That's the first step. It's interesting. God goes after them in the same order in which the sin progressed. He doesn't start with Adam and then go to Eve and then go to the serpent. He begins with the serpent, then he goes to Eve, and then he goes to Adam. So he begins with the serpent. It's kind of hard to discern. Is he talking to the actual serpent or is he talking to Satan inside the serpent? And it seems like he's doing both. Because I don't know that Satan really cares about the snake eating dust for the rest of his life. I guess he probably doesn't give a rip about that. But that's the first thing. God's like, look, serpent, now you are going to be a dust eater for now on. You will eat the dust. You will go on your belly. And then the other curse happens in verses 17 and 18, where he curses the ground with thorns and thistles. Now, I think, this is my opinion, and you can disagree, I think it's significant that nowhere does he curse Adam or curse Eve. Now, they suffer from the curse that God does put on the serpent and the curse he puts on the ground, but nowhere is he directly, does it say that he cursed Adam or cursed Eve. So he curses the livestock or he curses the, the, the serpent, and then he curses the ground. It's because of Adam's sin that the ground gets cursed, and it's because of Adam's sin that the serpent gets cursed. So they're cursed, and the curse is for Adam pain and sweat. And it's interesting that the same exact word for pain there is the word that he uses for Eve having pain in childbearing. So I watched my wife have four babies, and not only was she in pain, but she sweat. (laughs) And what's Adam going to do in the garden? He's going to be in pain, and he's going to sweat. So both of them are going to suffer the consequences that God is bringing upon their lives. And God seems to be hitting them, the man and the woman, with experiences of pain in their most unique areas of maleness and femaleness, the areas of work and childbearing, providing and childbearing. And then according to verse 16, the woman will now continue to go down this path and have a desire over her husband. Or what was the word in the journals? My Bible doesn't have that word. Her desires for her husband, contrary to. So they're taking, they're taking the, the vagueness that I guess is in my version. Maybe if you have your regular Bible with you, it has the same thing. Where it says, your desire shall be for your husband. Instead, the idea there, and that, that same exact phrase used later in chapter 5, is the idea that she will want to have dominion over him. She's going to want to dominate him. So he's passive, and she's going to dominate. That's part of what God is rolling out here in this chapter on their lives. But then, bookending God's words about these consequences they would face for their sin, there's more grace. There's grace. In verses 15, there's grace. And then down at the end of this chapter, there is grace. And there's three gospel glimpses, shockingly surprising gospel glimpses that we get here at the end of this. And I want to show them to you. The first one is seen in verse 15. Perhaps you're familiar with this one. Maybe I should ask you to raise your hand if you're familiar with the gospel glimpse in verse 15. Some of you guys are familiar with that one. We've talked about this one before. I will put enmity between you and the woman, God says, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God is talking. He's saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. So what is that saying? The, the offspring there that the woman is having is in the plural, if I'm understanding it correctly. So her offspring is going to cause enmity with Satan. So who are those 
offspring. Yeah, it's us. It's us. When you live for Christ, you put enmity between yourself and Satan. You want to cause Satan trouble? Live for Jesus. Live radical for him, and you will be part of this verse. You will put between yourself and Satan enmity, strife, conflict, when you choose to live your life for Jesus. It includes us. But then he says this, He, singular, shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. This is known as the Protoyangelion, the very first glimpse of the gospel in the Bible. Jesus will bruise, crush the head of Satan, and he will harm Jesus' heel, so to speak. This is the first glimpse of Jesus coming. And I, I would wish you could have been there just to watch Adam and Eve hear these words and how they would have reacted. Like, he's, he's going down. Like, yeah, he got the better of us. Take him down. Let's have these kids and let's take Satan down. And let's have this one kid who's going to take him down for good. First glimpse of grace. The second is in verses 21. And 22. Let me just read that section. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Another gospel moment taking place here. God clothes them with the skin of an animal. In order to get the skin off the animal, the animal is probably, probably dead my guess. Blood was shed so that Adam and Eve could be clothed. This shows us a few things. It shows us first that man is unable to cover his shame. You cannot cover your shame. Your attempt to do clothe making so that you appear righteous will only make you feel more filled with shame. So what does God do? God provides clothing to cover their shame. And I think what also is going on here is this is to show that there must be death and shed blood for sin and shame to be covered. Maybe that's obvious to you. I don't know. But I think that's what he's doing. And this is going to set into motion hundreds of thousands of pigeons and sheep and lambs that will be slaughtered for God's people so their sins can be somehow covered up. And it's also a picture of who, right? The Lamb of God who will come and sacrifice his life and shed his blood so he can clothe you in his righteousness so that you can escape the shame you feel day in and day out. There's only one place to go. You want to get released from shame, you turn to Christ and you let him clothe you in his righteousness And then you can stand before him shame-free because he's given you his righteousness over your sin. This is shocking that God would do this. Shocking that God would provide us with the clothing we need to escape our sin and our shame. Then the last thing here, last shocking surprise. Look what God does next. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, 
the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove him out, he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I don't know how you view this, but this is meant to be viewed as grace. If he had left them in the garden and they had access to the tree of life and they ate it, what does he say would happen? They'd live forever. God is protecting them. In fact, God is going extra hard to protect them. I'm not only going to take you out of the garden, Jack, but I'm going to put a cherubim there with a flaming sword to make sure there's no way you can get back to that tree and eat because if you do, you will live in a sinful state forever. And so he's protecting them. He's protecting them from eating and living with their sin and with their shame in the garden forever and ever and ever. This is God's kindness. This is God's mercy. This really is God's grace. And it is shocking that he would care for them this way rather than just say, fine, I'll just leave you in the garden. You want to eat trees? Go eat it. Have at it. Go for it. Live forever miserable. And instead in his kindness, he says, no, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to separate you lest you live in a, sinless, in a sinful state forever and ever and ever. Grace, my friends. Grace. So this morning, if you need to escape fear, shame, rather than trying to make yourself feel better about yourself by memorizing more scripture or doing good to your neighbor, rather than blaming situations and circumstances, turn to Christ. Just turn to him. Let him take your blame. Let him take your shame. And let him cover you with his righteousness. Dode, maybe you can put the scripture memory back up one more time. It beautifully ties in, which is why we picked it for this section of Genesis. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. All men who believe. All women who believe all children who believe Jesus' one act of righteousness makes you justified. It declares you righteous. It forgives you of all of your sins. Verse 19 goes on, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. If you love Jesus, you are righteous. That is such good news. Jesus has imputed his righteousness to you. So when the Father sees you, he sees the perfection of his Son clothing you. Verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life, not eternal death, not wandering the garden in death, eating the fruit of the tree, or the tree of life. Instead, we have eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? Let that verse overshadow Genesis chapter 3. It finishes the story for us 
It shows us the importance of Genesis 3 and what happened, and it shows us the way of escape from Genesis 3. See, our scripture memory is the way back into the garden, isn't it? It's the way back into the garden. It's our way back into escape shame and guilt and fear so that we can eat together of the tree of life, Jesus our Savior. Amen. Amen. Sing a song. Let's sing a song. Let's stand. I'm going to, guys, pray. I just want to thank Jesus for this reality, and then we'll sing, Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you that when we walk out this door today, we do not have to come up with ways to cover up our shame, that we don't need to think of ways to make ourselves look better or feel better about ourselves. We don't have to try to impress one another. We don't have to live fearful of you. We don't have to try to think of ways to talk ourselves out of feeling bad about things and blaming our circumstances. You have set us free. We thank you for that. Thank you for bearing all of our guilt and all of our shame as you hung naked on a cross so that we could stand before you confident that we are your beloved, that you care for us, that you walk with us, that you're going to pursue us. And it's not because of anything we could ever do. It's because of you, Jesus, your righteousness, your pursuit of us, your care for us, your calling our name. We honor you. We thank you. We praise you for that. We want to live for you because of what you've done for us. Strengthen us. Strengthen your church, I pray, with these truths. Set us free with these truths. I pray that even this week, that you would give us moments where we would be shockingly surprised at your grace, where we would see how wonderful your grace is and that would shock us fresh, that we'd be surprised by it in a new way like we've never been before. May we love you more. May we love your grace more. Help us. Help us this week. God, for any of my friends in whom that are feeling lethargic spiritually, just tired, worn out, passive, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would pour on them and ignite in them just a fresh love for you, a fresh gratitude for what you've done for them, a fresh perspective that you would shock them alive today. Mm -hmm. The power of your spirit, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.